a talent mindset and a growth mindset are, are absolutely tied when you think about it. I, I could argue that talent comes before growth because you're looking for people with that curiosity of always wondering why are we doing things the way we're doing it? Can we do it better? That, that's the definition of a growth mindset. But when an organization and arguably uh, special operations has this, I mean, they even have something called the special operations truths. There are five of them. And each five of those tenets, those axioms are centered around people, that people are the most important thing in the world. You can have the greatest technology in the world, but it will fail. And it's the people behind it that will make sure that they drive an organization to victory. So a talent mindset is the true foundational belief to your core that people are a strategic competitive advantage you can ever hope to achieve. And that's why you try to get the right ones into the door. And that's not always going to happen. That's the one thing we, we don't want to sell to people is that there's, there's, there's a perfect hiring process, a perfect interview process. There's not. Special operations has evolved their assessment and selection for over more than, for more than five decades. And they're still evolving it. Welcome to the Data Binge Podcast, a library of discussions with technologists and business leaders focusing on the human relationship with technology. Three, two, one, deploy. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining this very special episode today. I hope you and your families are well, safe, and healthy and sending you all the positive energy as you start or finish your day today. The ethos of the energy of this podcast has really been evolving over the past several years. The first episode posted March 4th, 2018, and was titled The Evolution of the Data Platform. And we talked quite deeply about what is going on in the world of cloud computing and big tech. But then we fast forward to today's episode recorded October 7th, 2020, Number 52, hire for character and train for skill. And the entire discussion is focused on the leadership and talent mindset that special operations forces can bring to the business world. We're all growing and evolving and changing over time. And I really feel like there is a power of compounding mastery at play that is developing not only across this podcast and its guests, but across how all of us are adapting and getting smarter with time as we put in the work in this new world that is emerging from beneath and around us. Things will oscillate, change, grow, we'll adopt, we'll get better, and all things, good or bad, will eventually pass and develop into something different. So I'm so very grateful for your attention and your time and your growth. Thank you for listening and being a part of this continuing journey. And I'm excited to continue to evolve with you. And now for today's discussion. Today's episode is a live recording of the Data Binge podcast hosted on LinkedIn featuring Mike Sorelli and George Randall, the co-authors of The Talent War, How Special Operations and Great Organizations Win on Talent. The Talent War is available for pre-order and scheduled to be made available anywhere you can buy books on November 10th, 2020, in line with the United States Marine Corps birthday, hallmarking the same day in 1775 when the Continental Marines were established. Mike Sorelli is a retired U.S. Navy SEAL officer, a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin, Macomb School of Business, where we actually both met and how we know each other. 
And Mike is now the CEO and co-founder of EF Overwatch, an executive search firm and talent advisory specializing in the recruiting, training, and placement of U.S. Special Operations Forces veterans with organizations seeking top talent, also co-founded with Jocko Willink. Mike served 15 years as an officer in the SEAL teams and five years in the U.S. Marine Corps as an enlisted recon Marine and scout sniper. Mike served in SEAL Team 3, Task Unit Bruiser, alongside Extreme Ownership authors Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, where he led major combat operations that played a pivotal role in the Battle of Ramadi in 2006. Mike assumed duties as the primary leadership instructor for all officers graduating from the SEAL training pipeline and was then selected for assignment to the Joint Special Operations Command, where he completed multiple combat deployments. JSOC, as you will come to know it, has an acceptance rate of one out of 35 SEALs that apply. Mike is a recipient of the Silver Star, six Bronze Stars, two Defense Meritorious Service Medals, and a Purple Heart. George Randall combines 20 plus years of Fortune 100 and Fortune 1000 global human resources and talent acquisition executive experience enabling individuals, teams, and organizations to achieve consistent and impactful outcomes. George is Hogan Leadership Assessment Certified and began his professional life by enlisting in the U.S. Army Reserve, where he got his commission as an active duty Army officer through ROTC. His career assignments included the U.S. Army Berlin Brigade, U.S. CENTCOM, and three Corps with deployments to Africa, Central America, and Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Over the course of his active duty time, he was privileged to serve in key leadership assignments, twice as a platoon leader, as the executive officer for the largest company in Berlin, and finally, two years as a company commander at Fort Hood, Texas. For the last 20 years, concurrently with his roles as a talent acquisition executive, George has trained and coached thousands of veterans on interviewing and career search skills, Today, George is the VP and head of global talent acquisition at Forcepoint, an industry-leading cybersecurity firm. This is not a discussion on how to hire and how to interview. It's a discussion on how business leaders and organizations can adopt the winning talent development strategies that the most disciplined and highly trained military organizations in the world have developed to be successful in the toughest theaters of war and combat. This is a discussion about leadership. If you would like a free copy of the book, please leave a rating and a comment about the episode on Apple Podcasts. I will be choosing one comment in the next 30 days, and the lucky listener will receive the Talent War book as a special thank you for contributing to the show. Just be sure to leave your email address in the comment, or you can simply email me at Derek at the data binge com to let me know you left a comment. A special thanks to the men and women who served in the armed forces. Thank you for you and your family's sacrifices for this amazing country. Thank you for listening. And now I bring you Mike Sorelli and George Randall. All right, everyone, welcome to this live production of the Data Binge podcast. We have an amazing session here today. Going to introduce a couple people to all of you. Thanks for tuning in and watching. 
we have the CEO and co-founder of EF Overwatch, Michael Sorelli, and we have the VP and head of global talent acquisition, George Randall, also co-authors of The Talent War. Gentlemen, how are you today? Derek, good to be here. Yeah, doing really well, thanks. So I typically ask this question of many of my guests, what is giving you both energy today? George, kick it off. For me, it's always keeping up with Mike, frankly. You know, we're, we're, we're both pretty high energy driven people. So I'm just chasing Mike, trying to keep up. And when we first tuned in, Mike was, he was eating his, his eighth meal of the day. So I can, I can imagine the, the energy that it takes to keep up with Mike. <laughs> he can do that. He's younger. <laughs> Which I, I, I've got to mention this because she yells at me every time. She's like, why don't you ever mention me in your podcast? I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, <laughs> she, she considers herself the, the real driving force behind the book the talent war and that's my wife she uh literally is my partner in everything uh that she does she even counts my macros for me it's partly because she doesn't want me to get fat so i'm trying to keep up with her everyone's trying to keep up with somebody is the bottom line but hey derek what's you know giving me energy today one this isn't my podcast room but i'm in a very uh very nice podcast room at a company that we're doing a leadership summit tomorrow and we're doing a dry dry run rehearsals to make sure that we deliver to the audience but it's you know the realization of what gets me out of bed is, dude, I'm just trying to get better with every day. I'm trying to figure this out. I'm trying to, to form a mastery in, in something. And that, I think, keeps me humble and it keeps me uh, driving forward. I love that. And it sounds like there's some other folks that are getting energy from this as well. So we have uh, Mo Sen says hi and Laura Hyman says she's so excited to hear these guys. So we have some folks that are commenting in. So definitely ask questions. This is a live discussion and we would like to create a community in this discussion and see what is on the hearts and minds of these two gentlemen. So apparently you guys have a book that you have on pre-order. I've ordered a few copies. You guys shared it with me in good faith before this interview to look at some of the concepts there. And it, it's been fascinating so far. I know you've been asked this quite a bit, you know, that the how, but I'd like to ask you why you came to this book together. Like what driving forces in each other's lives got you here? Well, George and I are passionate much about leadership. And this book really is a subset of leadership. It's a very important aspect of leadership. And it's usually the, the first stage of leadership is forming the team and bringing the right people into the organization to take an idea and to drive it into something that, that is tangible. Um, and, and George has dedicated the, the better half of his post-military career to this with close to 20 years in talent acquisition, highly respected. And I did a full career in the military and, you know, I was always fascinated and I did make it to the highest tactical level. You can a place called JSOC where a very small percentage uh, of people make it. In fact, of the SEAL teams, the last statistic I saw is that only 2% of the SEAL teams makes it to, uh, to that, to that level, one out of 35 SEALs. And, you know, that's not to, to, to uh, stratify the, the SEAL teams or downgrade anyone else, but the SEAL teams and, and all the special operations as a whole are just elite groups. And just watching how they create their teams and the processes that they've created to assess and select or what the, hire, or what the, the, the business world calls hiring, to assess, select people into their organization um, is something they take very seriously. And in fact, we could, I think, uh, safely say that special operations has the longest, most robust, multivariate hiring process uh, of any organization in the world. And um, 
George and I love talent and, and we're always talking about it. And then I think one night um, I, I was probably watching, uh, you know, uh, Desperate Housewives with with my wife and an idea came to mind. I said, hey, I got to call George uh, and, and ran outside because we lived in a very small house at that time and called George and I said, hey, we need to write a book. We need to write a book about talent because the business world, uh, you know, needs a lot of assistance in this area. And uh, a lot of small to mid-sized business leaders just don't know how to, 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 to start with forming the process of how do we create a world-class talent acquisition process. And uh, I said, and we need to use special operations as sort of the uh, business case example from which these small to mid-sized business leaders can, uh, can grow. Yeah, I think it was a, it was really, I mean, when he called me, I think he first talked about the episode of Desperate Housewives he was watching and wanted to cover ground and make sure I was up to date. But after we got past that and got to the, you know, the idea, there's just a lot of synergy because as Mike said, having done this for 20 years, Mike's lived in a world where they've done it better than anybody else. And then on my side of the equation, I've seen so many people who, frankly, just don't even have the first clue other than putting a butt in a seat. And I've watched them look at talent as almost like order taking or ordering something per spec from Walmart or Amazon. And, and you know, we, we've combined two great worlds into something that we think will benefit a lot of companies. And it's just, you know, Derek, the other thing too is, as you, you mentioned, George and I run an, an executive search firm. George is, is, and it's a specialized executive search firm that focuses on very prolific uh, military leaders. And George is the uh, strategic advisor. And we've seen so many mistakes dealing with clients um, where they made bad hiring decisions. And we, and not to you know, say we were right, we, we warned them, don't do this. Uh, we understand you're making this decision based off industry experience, but you love the attributes, the mindset and attitude of this other uh, individual. Go with the guy with mindset and attitude. It's the old Herb Kelleher uh, founder and CEO of Southwest. You know, we hire for mindset. We hire for attitude. We can teach you the hard skills. And that's just sort of dead. It's clinically dead in, in today's business environment. And, and you know, what's even more uh, frustrating is we talk to some very high level HR executives in companies, and some of them just the, they they think they have it figured out, and, and and they're so rigid in their process. And when you're rigid in your process, that that's when you start to make bad hires. So you're bringing a lot of information here. You guys both have uh, long, successful careers. Mike, you know, 15 years special warfare seals. You know, George, 20 years non commissioned officer, army. So you know what that looks like. You're saying that in the civilian world, businesses, they're, they're kind of losing it. And just to take a quick quote from your book, Don Robertson, the chief uh, HR officer at Northwestern Mutual, talks about talent. Everything is about talent. He who wins the war for talent wins the war. So do you talk about that? No, no, please talk about that. You know, I, I had the good fortune of being able to work for Don, which is one of the reasons that we reached out to him. And, and he is just a leader when it comes to staying ahead of the curve with people. And he recognized and, and he points out and, and we discussed is that with the speed of the economy, the speed of technology changing, how markets change, the only competitive advantage that you can hope to keep is your talent. 
And Don, you know, working for him, when I walked into the organization, when we were working together, it was a true butts and seat mentality. It was a volume play. You're incentivizing time. You're you're incentivizing efficiency. And you're not looking at the quality of hires. And then he comes in and, and we were able to do some really, really great things. So he was one of the first people we wanted to turn to because he sees the value of talent that it drives everything else in the business. When you think talent, Mike, I think in the book, one of the things I loved about, and I think I just read this last night when I was just reading through it, if, if you get anything away from the book, it's this idea of a talent mindset. So talent mindset, we've heard growth mindset. Here at Microsoft, we talk about growth mindset all the time. Carol Dweck, amazing book. But I've never heard about talent mindset and it's true. My takeaway from the book is you have to have a talent mindset. That has to be the, the center of your strategy. Can you talk? What comes to mind, Mike, when you hear talent and, and, and George as well? A, a talent mindset and a growth mindset are, are absolutely tied when you think about it. I, I could argue that talent comes before growth because you're looking for people with that curiosity of always wondering why are we doing things the way we're doing it? Can we do it better? That, that's the definition of a growth mindset. But when an organization, and arguably, uh, special operations has this. I mean, they even have something called the special operations truths. There are five of them. And each five of those tenets, those axioms, are centered around people. That people are the most important thing in the world. You can have the greatest technology in the world, but it will fail. And it's the people behind it that will make sure that they drive an organization to victory. So a talent mindset is the true foundational belief to your core that people are strategic competitive advantage you can ever hope to achieve. And that's why you try to get the right ones into the door. And that's not always going to happen. That's the one thing we, we don't want to sell to people is that there's, there's, there's a perfect hiring process, a perfect interview process. There's not. Special operations has evolved their assessment and selection for, over more than, for more than five decades. And they're still evolving it because they know that is what is required to secure victory from our future enemies is that our people are better than anyone they meet on the battlefield. And, you know, a lot of CEOs and a lot of business executives say, hey, people are everything. That, that's sort of the, the mantra. You have to say that. Uh, if you don't, you're, you're, you're going to get a backlash on LinkedIn. Of course, you're going to say that. And we, trust me, we are empathetic towards business leaders because ultimately business leaders are, are focused on driving revenue and driving impact. And sometimes we sort of forget about this, this strategic operation that happens over here called your people, your, your human capital, uh, the hidden line on a balance sheet that drives results. And, and that's natural. And we really also wanted to bolster HR with this book. And I think we do that. Human resources. I actually don't like the term human resources. It's people operations. It is, it, HR is a compliance function to make sure that we are making sure that, that paying benefits are, are, are squared away. Uh, that we are, you know, in accordance with with state and federal law uh, with regards to employment laws. But you really need exceptional people in your people operations who are securing the talent for every revenue generating function in your company. But hey, HR is traditionally a cost center. And that's why a lot of people just view it as a sort of overhead or a compliance function, not a strategic function. 
Yeah, ultimately, building on what Mike said, part of that talent mindset is ultimately getting to a point where you're treating your human capital with the same rigor, the same focus, the same level of importance as your financial capital, because it's what's driving your finance capital. And you know, Mike and I show some examples of what a talent mindset looks like, what it doesn't look like. And, you know, one of the stunning things that we found out is that CHROs, are often paid or on average paid one third of their C-suite counterparts. A clear indicator of how you don't have a talent mindset when that's the case, when, when that, to Mike's point, it's a compliance or administrative function versus a strategic one. And there are companies that do it well out there. I mean, I mean, there are some lions in, in the human resources world. Patty McCord. I think we all know who Patty McCord is from, from Netflix. Amazing. Uh, people operations leader, uh, Tracy Keo, who is a uh, mentor to uh, to George, and she's the CHRO uh, of Hewlett Packard. I mean, these are women that were business leaders that eventually stepped into the human resources function. And, and we, we do talk about that heavily in the book. Hey, listen, your HR leader has to know every facet of the business. They have to have lived in marketing. They have to have lived to, to set themselves up for success in sales. Uh, they have to have been a business leader before stepping into that function. So you, you have some folks that are commenting in and saying hi. You got Rich Cardona saying hi. Thomas Couture talks about mistakes will always happen. Cardinal Sin is ignoring those mistakes. You have James Hodling. Hey, James, C-suite executives always will come down to human-centric leading. Talent is more important than product to grow the organization. Uh, Laura Hyman, she's a career expert in military transitions. We can train people to do anything. We need to find that combination of talent and drive. So a lot of passion around this topic. And, and now I know why I saw your, your book on the number one seller for pre-order on Amazon last week. I love this discussion around HR. And I pulled some information off of an article, a, a Harvard Business Review article that I actually put into the event space. So folks could actually take a look at it. But the four ideas that came out of it, why outsiders versus HR background folks in the chief HR officer position succeed. Number one, these outsiders focus on business results, not only people outcomes. Uh, their role in pushing fellow leaders are not just supporting or serving them. A desire to embrace opportunity, not only reduce risk. And then this application of diverse business skills to the role. George, you've, you've been doing this for a long time in the HR kind of type of function. What kind of personalities are needed? What kind of folks need to start to step into this chief human resources role? What does that look like for you guys? Well, for us, and, and I agree with all of those points about, you know, some of the best people and the examples that Mike used that you're bringing people from the business and putting them into HR. But one of the things is HR can already be those people. The reason that people from the outside are successful is because HR hasn't elevated itself to apply people solutions to business problems. They're not partners. To your point, they're more supportive. They're an overhead function. What the HR function has to do is show their business impact, act in strategic advisory ways when it comes to providing solutions to the problems of all the different departments within the business. And most of them fall back into that administrative or that operational, they're running performance management, they're running total rewards, comp and benefits. To, you know, those are important things, making sure people are getting paid on time, that, that salary banding is correct and all of those things. But ultimately, that's just kind of a task-driven organization. You have to have the expert in people 
being your CHRO, tied at the hip with your CEO, talking about how talent solves business problems. And we're just not doing... Mike made a good point. There's a lot of lions out there like Tracy, like Don, Tom Lokar, Patty McCord that are doing this, but it's not enough. It's not enough. And, and we need HR to... Hopefully, they get out of this book how to elevate themselves to be that strategic partner. Because as we go on in the book, you know, special operations is special for a number of reasons, but we made a very, it was very important to us to make sure to recognize all of the support elements that are equally special that allow them to do those things that, you know, we see in the movies or we read in the papers. And so you have to have A players, A player strategic partners all across your HR function. Mike, when you think about leadership in special operations and you try to translate that over to some of the skill sets that you believe businesses should be adopting, uh, and we'll go into interviewing and we'll go into some of those nuanced talent finding items first, but I, this leadership discussion is great. Like, What translates for you in your special ops experience? Everything. Everything translates. It's, this is the most frustrating thing is when, you know, we hear business leaders say, hey, that's great. The way you guys led in the military, you just bark orders, people run off and, and do what you say. And I look at them and think, wow, I don't know what movies you've been watching, but if you want to come watch me have to lead 40 SEALs or 40 Green Berets, one, you're going to see some of the most intellectual, effectively, effectively intellectual people who are A players, A type personalities with their own egos, with their own agendas. And guess what? I'm going to have to build consensus. I'm going to have to motivate. I'm going to have to drive them to action. Sometimes I'm going to have to check my ego and say, hey, you know what? Your plan's better than mine. Let's go with your plan. It's absolutely the business world. And it's one of the most diverse groups that you'll ever meet. So you know, as we in this book is is based a lot off of the uh, the interviews and research we did to include with our main contributor um, who's on the cover, Dr. Josh Cotton. Interesting story, and let me just cover Josh really quick. So Josh was not in the military, uh, got his doctorate in IO uh, psychology, and after he finished his doctorate and became a, a doctor in uh, IO psychology, the Navy approached him and said, "Hey, we'd love to hire you for a project. We want you to assess how we assess and select." Navy SEAL candidates into our community. And so he did that for a number of years. He also worked with Green Berets. And so Josh, George, and I were having these conversations about what, what are the commonalities? What are the common threads uh, amongst high performers, regardless of domain, regardless of, of industry? And really it came down to a long discussion and interviewing a lot of experts in what are those common threads? And, and we came up with nine foundational attributes of high performance. And funny enough, each of the special operations communities within the United States Special Operations Command had already had theirs. They already came came up with theirs. Some of them had six, some of them had 12. Uh, and pretty much they're all looking for the same thing with, with slightly different variations, but they'd already codified it in, in a sense. You look at great leaders, let, let's say, you know, Jeff Bezos, and you take a general Mattis, they will align in a lot of these attributes. Guarantee it. Wildly different domains, but the attributes are the, the same. You will find them off the charts in drive. You'll find them off the charts in um, effective uh, you know, intelligence. What I did see and what I know, both from the business world and the military, is that the best leaders had off the charts humility. 
That, that's key. That's what we look for. You know, if Overwatch for the place placements we make, we already know that we're dealing with high performing people, but it's humility, the ability to recognize that you don't have all the answers. You are never the smartest man or woman in the room. And if you lack humility, it almost is a killer of curiosity. Somebody who lacks humility can't take feedback, which means they can't improve. Somebody who lacks humility doesn't have a curiosity to wonder how they can make their organizations or them, themselves better. So, you know, having for a kid that grew up in Atherton, California, right in the heart of Silicon Valley, Palo Alto, it kills me to see the business world sort of downtrodden you know, military leadership and what the military brings to the table, their style of management. And uh, Derek, uh, you didn't mention to the crowd, but we all, we were in the UT MBA program together. And there was a professor, John Butler, who wrote a book about military leadership and from interviews and data showed that the current business uh, management system or style was derived from no, none other than the U.S. military. You look at post-World War II and the boom, the growth that we had, that was in large part due to the veterans coming home, which was a large number. In fact, if you want to look at a look at it from a entrepreneurship standpoint, one in two veterans that returned from the war, that's over 50%, started their own business and drove the economy to what it is today. They've laid the found the very foundation for what we have the luxury of experiencing today. I mean, it also impacted going to that. I like to talk about diversity and inclusion quite a bit, and I'm sure we'll, we'll cover that at some point in, the, in this discussion, but World War II had a, an amazing effect on black young men who were able to enlist and actually build some wealth, come back, spend that wealth, start consuming. So I really appreciate you visiting all these different ideas because there's a lot of history in how the military has, has dictated how our economy has been running the last you know, several decades. Going back to, so you talk about humility Humility makes so much sense. And I, I read uh, Jocko's book, Extreme Ownership, and it talks about you know, taking ownership. And I think humility was a big component of that. And that was also a business book for folks that want to check, take a look at that. I think your book as well, there's a lot of resonance between the two. But going back to Josh Cotton, and I took this from the book as well, a quick quote. A quick quote. He was talking to a Navy SEAL instructor, and Josh was asking some questions around how you can spot talent, when you t take a look at these young men that are coming in, young men, and trying to see whether or not they would be effective or not, the instructor said, you can't see talent. It's not the biggest guy person, if we're being inclusive, or the strongest or fastest. You have to trust the process. The process will reveal who has the potential to become a SEAL. Let's talk about interviewing. Yeah. And one of the things that special operations does before we kind of get to process is they defined what attributes mike said you know each one of the special operations groups codified that they've made success profiles they know what success looks like and before you even get into the interviewing process most companies make the very very common and easy mistake that they haven't defined success for that role so if you haven't done that, any process that you set up is going to be a process and name only. You're going to be looking at the default characteristics on the resume, experience, GPA, degrees, certifications. That process that you design will not be successful if you don't understand by role or at least by department what does success look like. You know, we listed nine attributes. 
not every SEAL, not every Ranger, not every Green Beret or PJ or Marsoc Raider is going to have all nine. But they are going to have, they're going to have all nine, but five or six of those are going to be extremely strong or extremely high. But each one of the special operations organizations has defined very clearly what they're looking for. And people will build processes in talent acquisition and HR, but they skip the very first step. So how do you know what you're looking for if you haven't defined success? You know, when Josh asked that question, that, that's putting somebody on the spot. is basically articulate to us your process. It's much like leadership. If I go into the business world, much like I can go to the military, because for a lot of military leaders, leading is just muscle memory. Hey guys, you know, I will stand by this and I don't think any business can object. The military is the world's preeminent leadership development program without debate. If companies could replicate that, they would. That's the benefit of military leaders coming out. But, you know, military leaders alike who've been serving for 20 years and leading and business leaders, I can go and ask them, tell me about your leadership style. And George knows this. Mm -hmm. And some leaders, some amazing leaders will talk for 10, 20 minutes and they'll go into deep theory or give me a thesis on leadership ending up with neural pathways. And if you're doing that, you really haven't cemented what your leadership style is, nor is that simple for somebody to go and execute the next day. They have a process. Special operations has a process. And that's what a lot of companies don't have. And they hold to that process. They don't deviate from it. Because when you deviate from a process that is highly successful, that's when you start to make bad hires. But George is right. It starts with identifying what you're looking for. And when we work with a lot of clients to come to us for senior level placements, we ask them for the talent profile. And usually the answer is, uh, what is that? What are you talking about? Tell us what makes somebody successful in that role. What are, what are the attributes that make them successful? What are, what are possibly some additional soft skills or hard skills? And they can't give that. And again, we tell them that's okay. You know, you're focused on driving re- revenue or customer enga- uh, service or, 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 you know, employee engagement. We, we get it. It's okay. We'll, we'll help you develop that. You know, the definition of talent, and this is where people go wrong. And we, we've had some people, you know, criticize us on LinkedIn is we use a term called A players a lot. And I think what people think is like, oh, what they're talking about is alpha males. That's not what we're talking about. In fact, what A players are the opposite. They're not the loudest man or woman in the room. They're usually high performers and they're high performers because they have a lot of those nine foundational attributes to some degree. But usually it's the humility A players have to look at somebody that's younger than them and say, you know what? That young man or young woman right there, they're going to be better than I am. We got to get them into this organization now. And if we don't have an open role, create a role for them. And that's basically what special operations does is we look for our very best from the community who've done the job, know what a successful SEAL or Green Beret or or MARSOC Raider looks like, and then we put them into assessment and selection to be the instructor cadre. And they have the humility to say, hey, I have five combat deployments, but that young man that has none, he's got everything it takes to be better than I am. And the point is that you're continually hiring better people into the organization. And that requires somebody to do the hardest thing for any human to do. Check their ego. And Derek, because I don't think I got all the way to the end of your question, one of the things we don't do in the book is we don't describe a specific process, meaning this is not a task list for companies to have a process. What we we did a couple things. Number one, you need to know what you're looking for. 
And then we talk about the attributes that are predictive. We had a great contributor to this book. His name's Brian Decker. He's the vice president of player development for the Indianapolis Colts. And he was a former officer and helped redefine, you know, the U.S. Army Special Forces Assessment Selection. And he has this great quote, which is, performance isn't always portable. So it's critical. You've, certainly, you want to look at performance. But we talk about defining the success profiles what predictive attributes you should be looking for or what you might be looking for in individual roles. And then we talk about who should be interviewing your A players, that A players select A players. I know we're going to talk about that, that you should have a multivariate, meaning there should be multiple steps in this. It's just not an interview. It's not a resume screening. Who sees whom when? And then we talk a little bit about assessment tests that you can use. We try to write it for the biggest audience possible ideally small to medium businesses, to give them a really, really good framework of what success, what predictive attributes you should be looking for. But we didn't get overly prescriptive on how you do that process, gave them a really good guideline to then define and customize something that works for their company, their market, their vertical, what have you. Had we done that, had we come up with this checklist or some sort of subscriptive approach, we would have done a disservice to companies. Mm -hmm. It is how the Navy SEALs select for Navy SEALs is different from how the MARSOC Raiders select for their Raiders or or for how the Special Forces select for their their next generation of uh, Special Forces. It's going to be different for every industry. It's going to be different for every company, even within respective industries. It's going to be different for different functions within your your company, it starts the discussion. Then we got him, hey, this is how you take the discussion and this is how you, you have to create a fully holistic process. And what we end at, the biggest part of this process that most people overlook is a feedback loop. Mm-hmm. This is how you evolve. Some people like to call this a, in the sales world, a post-mortem. Uh, in the military, we call them an after-action review, a debrief, or a hot wash. So the special operations community tracks every person that gets into the community. They pass training, they become a brand new SEAL, and they are tracked through their career, whether it's a six-year career or a 35-year career. And we keep a record on them. And let's say somebody makes it to the 15-year mark and does something highly unethical, and we have to get them out of the community. We go back and look at, hey, what did we miss in the assessment of those attributes in his character or her character that we can look for evolve the process that we currently have so that we don't repeat that same mistake. Or if somebody's highly successful, let's, let, let's do another sort of profile on that individual and what made them so highly successful. There are people that finish in the last, let's say quartile of all the bud students who barely pass seal training that turn out to be exceptional seals. And again, that's a case where we're going to look at that feedback loop and say, Hey, what did we miss? Or why did they do, let's say not so exceptional in training uh, compared to their counterparts, but what was it that accelerated them to be a top performer within the community? And you have to have those discussions, not only your errors, your hiring errors, but also your hiring successes. And once you start to do that and it takes time, you start to build a process and George is right. It's got to be a multivariate process. When people start saying, what is the perfect interview process? That's like saying, Hey, who's the perfect leader? It doesn't exist. There is no such thing as a perfect leader. We're all flawed. Even if someone is high in all nine 
you know, foundational attributes. Let's take drive, for instance. And there, there's an individual who wrote a book called uh, The Attributes. It comes out in January. His name is, was Rich Devaney, Navy SEAL was the leader of assessment and selection for his respective uh, community. And what he found is that people with high drive sometimes have high narcissism. And so it, it shows you that even somebody with off the charts drive can be a little bit narcissistic. And guess what? That's okay. If they're driving results for the company and the, and the culture is still healthy, we're willing to accept that. Sometimes some of the highest performers in any domain are some of your biggest wild cards as well. And that just has to be understood. But people tend to focus on the red flags first and utilize those to, to, to get rid of people and say, well, he's a big personality. There were a lot of big personalities in the SEAL. There's even more big personalities in the business world. But if they are a contributing team member, if they contribute to the overall culture of the organization and then driving results, that, that's somebody that can be on your team. It doesn't mean you have to like them. And that's the other thing that people talk about culture fit. There are all these terms with diversity and inclusion. I think people get them wrong. I think they've, they've got bad definitions. When people talk about culture fit, you know what they're saying? Do I like this person? We got a question. We got a, we got a question in about likability from Eliza, and this is going to pair with your culture fit, Mike. Uh, she, she asked, I'd like to hear Mike or George clarify their thoughts on likability being a factor or not a factor for candidate selection. I think we've all seen where this is where higher HR hiring practices can fall short. I know where you're going with this culture fit and I like it. Please continue it keeping her question in mind. Absolutely. And it is a great question. Thank you for asking that. George and I go off on this one. Uh, so people use likability and they sort of use it, uh, you know, not synonymously with culture fit and likability. I'll put it to you this way. Do you think I liked all the seals on my team? Derek? No way. Not in a million years. Yeah, no, I, I didn't. It's, it's just like to say that the pennant winning uh, New York Yankees all get along. I guarantee they didn't. I guarantee, and I don't know, Jeter didn't like A-Rod. Or the big two personalities didn't get along. Yet, on the ball field, they could work together to drive results. So, yes, I, I didn't like all the SEALs. And some of the, 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 the SEALs I didn't like were the most high-performing individuals. But we had a sense of professionalism where we could come together on Monday and say, hey, what's the challenge for the week? Knuckle bump? Okay. Your plan or my plan? Let's go with your plan. And we would find a way to win. That's what professionals care about not whether they like those like each other because that's that's your feelings and your feelings are going to take you in the wrong direction your your feelings are tied to your ego and at the end of the week or, or after a deployment they would go hang out with their friends i'd hang out with mine and we would come back together when uh, when there was a new mission so you know people get it wrong i think reed hastings sort of hit on it in his new book you're not hiring to create a family people keep talking about where we want we want to be a family no, you want to be a team that wins. That's what's most important. You could be a team that wins or you could be a family that doesn't drive results and the company's going to go out of business uh, anyways. And that's what you need to focus on is building high-performing teams, professionals that can put their egos aside, whether they like each other or not, and drive results. You know, it's, and Mike and I talk about this and, and it's a really difficult, we don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but when people are hiring for likability, Generally, it's because they haven't been trained in how to interview. And that's absolutely critical that most people that are interviewing that I've seen over my 20-year career are people that are available within that department that will have to work with that person. And so what do they default to? Well, do I like this person? And so it's an easy default to say, well, I like them. And, you know, you've got these objective character or you've got these objective experience lines on the resume. Hey, let's make the hire. They'll fit into the team real well. 
And to Mike's point, you're trying to build a team that wins. And part of that is building an interviewing team that wins. A players selecting A players and then train them how to interview for those success factors that you're looking for. Likeability is simply a default and people over-index on it. And as soon as they can have a conversation with somebody, they're off and running. But when it comes to times like COVID or it comes to where your market is dipping or your competitor came out with a new product, likeability is not going to get you to win. Likeability is not going to get you to adapt. Likeability is not going to get you through the hard times. It's the character attribute. So it's a default position. Now, certainly you don't want somebody in the interview that's rude and unprofessional. Absolutely. But likeability is not a factor that should be included in your process in any way, shape or form. So we're, we're, we're getting a lot of responses from this and the commentary. And it, I mean, you can feel it with just with the passion that you both have. Um, folks are talking about, you know, it's difficult to even say you want to be on a team and not join the family. That was from Laura. Eliza, she said, fantastic clarification. Eliza thinks that was an amazing question. Loic is talking about egos too big, plus strategy comes second, plus time consuming, plus resume centric equals the wrong hiring process. Um, so there's a lot of resonance on these types of topics. Just doing a some research behind some data. Organizations' top recruiting priorities, 68.1% said sourcing candidates directly, and I'll put the the source into the the chat soon. Building talent pools for the future, 65.7%. But succession planning was only 33.9%. Like, like, how do you, you know, what do you think organizations are just over-throttling or under-throttling when it comes to their top recruiting priorities? How much time do we have on that one? Mike yeah. and I are both be off. Um, George, this is perfect job, George, for you, tactical versus strategic. Yeah, it's so it starts with defining success, but the succession planning is where are you going to put the talent? Where do you need those success profiles? So when people talk about building talent pools, when people talk about sourcing candidates or how you're going to find the candidates or where you're going to find the candidates, it starts with understanding your organization from a tactical and a strategic perspective. What is successful in each role, in each department, and each function? It's going to differ from engineering to sales to product management, customer service. All those things are different. You have to define your success profiles. But then succession planning. The world's worst thing in, well, I shouldn't say this, I'll default to Mike, but it's not a good circumstance if a special operations team has one person who is a single point of failure on communications and you have nobody else to use that. So succession planning, where do you have a single point of failure? Where don't you have depth? Where don't you have number twos? Where don't you have number threes for your critical parts of your business? And that includes HR. So you've got to get through those things first. It's so many times we've seen people skip those first two essential steps and move into how do we source candidates? How do we create a talent brand? How do we create talent pools? How do we keep them engaged? Well, it's great that you're keeping a group of people engaged. And as far as what people over-index on, Mike and I, I think we're pretty dead on on this one. People over-index on experience and over-index on resumes. If it's not on the resume and it doesn't fit a cut-and-paste job description, they're moving on. They're not looking for the character attributes. But the reason they don't know is you've never created them. So that data you threw out, Derek, it really shows the mindset of where people are with hiring and overall their, their talent management. So 
what you cited really shows that a lot of people are in a tactical mindset, which is to say you're sort of putting out fires. You're you're reactive in your hiring. Hey, we just had an opening. Two people fire uh, quit, or we fired two. Hey, we need to go find two people to replace them. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than having a strategic mindset of building a deep bench of talent, organizations that are building a deep bench of talent, not only getting the right people in, and Al Kim on here, Al is a uh, Marine Colonel. I, I saw his thing. He said, hey, it goes beyond hiring, is that you have to invest. You have to pour into your people after you get them through the door. Um, that's how you create a deep bench as well. This is a, a two-prong uh, equation that George and I have. It's talent, getting the right talent in the door, plus leadership, which means leadership development and actually leading your people ultimately equals victories. So it is talent acquisition. It is talent management. But people that are strategic in nature, which means they're leaning forward, which means they're creating a deep bench of talent, are also engaging in succession planning. They do this. I mean, special operations, if you removed Admiral McRaven at any moment, there would have been as capable of leader to step up and take his position. Um, Same with Jocko. Love him. One of my biggest mentors. You took him off the battlefield. Guess what? We'd step up. We'd lead in his absence because he taught us well. That that's a true decentralized organization. The true legacy of leadership is not how the organization performs when you're there. That's expected, or you'll be fired if you're not driving results. But the true legacy of leadership is how well the organization succeeds after you leave. That's the ultimate determination of whether you've you've done your job. And we talked in the book to a lot of military leaders about this. General Jerry Boykin, uh, who's arguably one of the sort of founding members of Delta Force. And he talked about how they were always assessing their current talent pool Mm -hmm. and pouring it uh, differently to the ones that they knew were future leaders than the ones who they knew were were maybe DNC players. And then we even talked to leaders out in the business world. The 7-Eleven CEO, Joe DePinto, which by the way, he's a West Point graduate. He was an army officer. He talked, he said, my CHRO is in my hip pocket at all times. And we're always talking about succession planning so that we are not hit from, you know, uh, either, either side, we're not hit from, uh, from left field and stuck in a reactive situation. We are always being proactive that if we identify, Hey, that's a potential future gap go find somebody now. And that's, that's really the difference in that data that you, that you just rattled off. There's one more thing that I would add, Derek, you know, when we talk about Mike drives home the point, you know, there's always somebody to step up. If you have a 200 person organization from the first person down to the last one, everybody knows the succession plan. But what's interesting that Don Robertson talked about too, and another thing that people over index on is they're hiring for that job description. We all know, and I think probably everybody listening to this, the speed of which products are brought to the market, technologies change, products change, new services become available. You have to be hiring people with the capacity for the jobs that you may have in the future as well. You know, people that are hiring go, well, do they fit the specific job description? And they don't look, do you think that job description is going to stay the same in 12 months, 18 months, 24 months? I'd be willing to bet almost a year's wages that it won't last 18 months before that job description changes substantially. So beyond succession planning is you've got to hire people with, you know, that effective intelligence that drive all of those attributes, because those are the things that will keep them ready and growing and learning for the jobs of the future. We've talked about this before, and I'd like to start to shift the discussion a little bit. And we talked about, you know, workforce planning and technology. I'm, I'm working at Microsoft. A lot of our, uh, of, of course, uh, you, George, you're, you're at Force Point today. I'm sure EF Overwatch 
is going to have a lot of different clientele in the tech space because of the over-rotation of the experience profiles that people are looking for. George kind of took your words out of your mouth there. We're talking tech. We're talking heavy technical talent. We're talking people looking for very specific experience profiles. You're looking at folks jumping around because technology is changing so fast. It's hard to retain people. So can we talk a little bit about talent retention and, and hiring for technical talent and what that looks like and some frameworks you guys are looking at? Well, one of the things that, that we took really great measures to emphasize is that there's still an experiential gate for positions. You're not going to take somebody off the street that has all of these nine attributes and make them a CEO. You're not going to make them the chief architect of you know your next go-to-market product there's still going to be some experiential gates and you should be looking at those technical skills. But to your point, those technical skills change. And I was just talking with our VP of sales in the federal space. And he said, if they have the tech aptitude, he says, I, you know, I will certainly, you know, if somebody needs to be programming in C++, if somebody needs to have AWS or Azure experience, absolutely you're going to have that, but you still have to be looking for the attributes even in your tech people, but you're not always hiring the highest level of that experience. You can bring somebody in and grow them. And at the end of the book, you know, Mike touched on it earlier, you still have to invest in that talent. So even if they have a few years of tech experience, you still have to grow that within your company. And the only way you grow that is if they have those attributes. Otherwise, you know, we can train, we can, you can't train the character, you have to train the skill. So it's very difficult to ignore certain levels of experience. And we don't say to do that, but don't over-index on it. Additionally, to your point about people jumping around, and that happens an awful lot, but people generally don't leave companies, they leave bosses. And so in our final chapter, we talk about talent plus leadership equals victory. If you don't have a foundation of leadership, if you aren't training your tech managers to the point of this question, or your sales managers, or your service managers, or even your internal IT organization, those leaders, if you're not investing and growing that leadership foundation, any process, any succession planning, any success profiles, those people aren't going to stay. So while the book is about talent, we made an entire chapter about that leadership foundation. And as Mike entered into you know, the conversation, he said, picking talent is a subset of leadership. And so leadership is all throughout this book and it is the number one determinant when it comes to attrition. You can look at any pulse or sensing survey from any company and greater than 70% is gonna have something to say about the leadership of the company. This is so simple. To George and I, when, when people talk about, well, how do we retain people? The, the number one way you retain people is through great leadership. I think the, the tech sector struggles with this immensely because people hop from company to company. What's, what's the average within uh, tech, George? I think it's two to three years that, and then they move on. And going down. Total lack of loyalty. When you talk about retention of your great talent, George just said, people, A players won't put up with bad leadership. If you want to retain your people, you have to lead. You have to be a consummate leader. You have to continually set the example. If you preach something, you better live your values. Ben Horowitz just recently wrote a book about this, about you know living your values. 
and how often we see companies throw some beautiful language on the wall, say it's their core values. But if I came in with a little checkboard and watched how they behave on a daily basis, I, I would tell you they violate all of those. It's creating that culture uh, of leadership that people just want to be around. And, you know, I think the ultimate tale of that is when somebody says, hey, guys, I, I love this company. You're great leaders. But this company over here, Company X, offered me 20000 over what you can pay me. And I'll tell you what, you treat that person with the uh, utmost respect. You get an exit interview because you want to hear their opinions. You wish them well. And I guarantee if you truly are a well-led company, that person will come back and say, hey, a year and a half later, hey, I was wrong. Do you guys still have a spot? That's when you know you're a well-led company. When the people that leave come back within a uh, few years, leadership gets us out of the bed. It gets us out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Great leaders. You choose a great boss more so than you choose a, a great job because they tend to take you with them. And I am a product, as is George, of great mentors. You look at my mentors, Jocko Willing. Well, first off, my dad and my mom, they poured into me. I didn't always appreciate it, couldn't understand it at a young age. Uh, about every Marine leader that I encountered, the Marine Corps set the foundation for me. I had guys like Jocko was my mentor. I had guys like Chris Fussell who uh, helped pen the book, Team of Teams, with uh, Stanley McChrystal. And, and there's a lot of guys who I can't mention because they're still on active duty. I'm an absolute product of the mentors I had, and I'm probably not representing them well. I apologize. I'll up my game. But you also have to understand people want certain things with regards to uh, retention. You know, George and I were talking to Jocko about this to the point where we went back, broke the manuscript, and recently updated it so that by the time it releases, this, this will be added. But people want growth opportunities. They want to be one part of a team. They want to be part of a team. Uh, they want growth opportunities. They want ownership and autonomy. They want to be con in control of their own lives, of their destiny. They want autonomy to lead within a company, their team, and make decisions, which is the definition of decentralized command. The growth opportunities, the autonomy and ownership is key to retaining people. But at the end of the day, the overarching theme there is is great leaders. Uh, great leaders provide all those things for uh, for their people. So decentralized command that was a one of the I think chapters or pieces in Jocko's book, Extreme Ownership. And again, I completely understand where you guys are going with that um, because a, a lot of folks and I, I work with some really smart, very engaging people, just brilliant people. And I mean, you guys are you couldn't be any more correct. Where the more brilliant and the more technically savvy, specifically in talking in tech engineering, software development, mm -hmm. they want freedom. They want agility. Mm -hmm. They want the ability to take risks and have those risks attenuated with great leadership that stands behind them and allows them, gives them the leash to go ahead and try new things because that's the only way that you get better. And I think when you have leaders that are conservative, don't let you do those different things that's when it starts to feel different you know for me myself if i had a leader that wasn't going to let me go out on a limb and start doing live engagements and interviewing people and doing all these different things to create a different type of engagement with the world i would try to go out and find things that would give that to me whether it be monetary mm -hmm. role jumps things that really don't mean anything to try to satisfy the ego because i'm not getting any opportunity to create. And I think a lot of people feel that way. So it's really cool that you guys are, are touching on these different ideas. Again, going back to leadership, what can leaders do? If they're listening to this discussion, what, what advice do you have for them? Because uh, uh, Hen Henrik commented, it's simple, 
but it's not easy, right? So like, what does that look like? What does the transformation look like for you guys? How do you do that? Henrik is uh, reciting what, what Jocko says. Leadership is simple. At the root of it, the pr- I mean, come on, we all understand the principles. We, we've been taught them from a young, young age for the most part. But man, leadership is not easy because you are flawed and you are dealing with people, which by nature, people are freaking crazy. Let's, let's be honest. I've got to deal with George on a daily basis and I rack my head against the, uh, the desk. Brutal. Brutal. Uh, no. <laughs> no, even more so, you know, George has to deal with me. But, you know, the first step for a leader is not to let, look externally because let's be honest, most leaders will look at their company that's maybe performing, but not to the level they want. And they said, well, if I just had better people, I'd be succeeding which is true, but you're not getting better people because you're the problem. First step for every leader is to look in the mirror and to be brutal on yourself. Where am I failing my organization as a leader? If my retention or my attrition is high, there's no one else to blame. There's no pointing fingers or casting blame. It's looking in the mirror and saying, what am I doing to exacerbate this problem? And what am I not doing to fix it? What steps do I need to take as a leader of this organization to reverse this problem and create an environment where people don't want to go? That an environment where, where people will move heaven and earth to ensure that the organization succeeds. That despite a volatile, an environment of volatility and uncertainty and complexity and ambiguity like COVID, people will remain calm by your side to drive the organization forward. So a lot of leaders, that's hard to do. That's hard to take a step back and look in the mirror and, and take ownership over the problems within your organization. But if you can do that, one, you're starting down the path of humility. You can work at humility. We can't over-index on this attribute enough. In fact, Derek, the Army, which is a 244-year-old institution, and arguably this is coming from a former Marine and, and a Navy SEAL. The Army has produced more leaders for this nation than any other organization in our land. That, the, again, that's, that, that's without debate. And they just updated their leadership manual, and humility went to the top. That's one of the key attributes of a leader. And you can work at humility, much like you can work at discipline on a daily basis. Humility is looking in the mirror. It's doing a personal hot wash or a debrief or an after action on a daily basis and identifying all the areas for improvement and how you can take action the next day. And a lot of people that are just not introspective, they just don't do that. Yeah, there are two things that, and and one of them I'll get to that helped Mike and I, because there, there's no doubt Mike and I have tons of ego between us. And that ego drives us to get better. But one of the first things that you have to do as a leader, like Mike said, look in the mirror, but you have to check your ego because it's all on you, but it's not about you which just came out in you know, Jocko's field manual. I pass that around to all my leaders. It's not about you. It's about the team. And that's one of our attributes is team ability. Can you put the team, can you put the mission first? And one of the simple ways, actually, Mike gave me the phrase, and, and I tell everybody that I possibly can about it, which is the best idea wins. When you're doing something, when you're doing something with engineers, it doesn't have to be your idea. It's the idea that advances the product that helps get you over the finish line. And humility is a sign of strength, not weakness. And if you can check your ego and just operate under best idea wins, those are some of the easiest first steps. Well, simple, not easy. But putting the best idea wins out of something in your organization as a junior or senior leader is something that's going to get you on the path. 
you know, really quickly in Derek, uh, don't not to take this off tracks. You did mention diversity and inclusion yep. uh, earlier. And if we can go back to that for a second, this is Please. where you, know, you basically mentioned that the military is more progressive than mainstream society with, with desegregation of our armed forces for African-Americans being, st- I don't want to say stuck, being in that environment in the military for over 20 years. We really don't look at color. We, we don't look at sex. We don't look at sexual orientation. We don't care about any of that. We judge people not on the color of their skin, but on their competency and their ability to be humble and to contribute, to be a multiplier to our culture. Going to boot camp from a kid from California thrust into that environment. I, I remember, you know, I had kids from Kentucky, from Louisiana, uh, all the Western states, and it was just a melting pot. So diversity, when we think about diversity, we want diversity of thought. Again, it goes back to likability and culture fit. When you hire people that you like, they tend to think like you. That's why you like them so much. I actually want people to push against my ideas because one, my ideas are you know, traditionally bad and they're half-baked, but I want people constantly pushing against my ideas. I want diversity of thought. I want people with different viewpoints, with, with different you know, experiences. And if you can do that, and ultimately once a decision is made, everyone gets behind that final decision, whether it was their idea or not, and drives it until it's successful. That's the definition of, uh, of diversity and inclusion. You know, I think people are, are, are focusing so much on our differences right now. Why don't we focus on the things that we have common? Because when you're in the mountains of Afghanistan, nobody cares if you're black or white. Nobody cares if you're a male or a female. Nobody cares if you're, you're gay or straight. What we care about is that you're an American and that we have a job to do and that we love one another. And ultimately, that's what drives us to get the job done and try to bring as many people home as possible. Should be no different in the uh, the business world. But right now, you've got such a bipartisan you know, society uh, divided by this line of, of left and right, looking at their differences rather than looking at what unites them. And inclusion? Inclusion means we want you involved. Great leaders want diversity of thought. They want everyone included. And if they've created that environment, you will be included. I think what a lot of people, they end up using these terms uh, in a negative standpoint, where you know that company lacks in- inclusion, well, actually, much like the leaders who are taking ownership over their organizations, if you're saying that, you should look in the mirror and say, "Have I made an effort to include myself?" If you're contributing to uh, the mission in the SEAL teams or the Marines, the Army, it doesn't matter. You're going to feel inclusion. We want you, and we want your contribution. We want your thoughts. But right now, I think a lot of companies are getting that wrong in the uh, the business world, George. I, I'm no, I do. I do completely. You know, it was General Patton that said, if everybody here is thinking alike, then nobody's thinking. And you need the diversity of thought. And you need to be judging people on their character attributes and their performance. That's the only thing you should be measuring by. And Mike and I... We've served with everybody of every ethnicity, religion, gender, sexual orientation. I, to be honest with you, I couldn't tell you sexual orientation. My people, I really didn't care. I cared that they had my back. I hit, I cared that they were going to help us complete the mission, that they were going to take care of one another no matter what. And Mike's right. Uh, there's too many people focusing on the divisive aspects of people and what makes us different versus, okay, yeah, Derek, you and I are different, but what are your ideas? 
what are your best ideas that are going to take Mike and I's half-baked ideas and make them fully baked and make them something that we can produce, that we can sell, that we can monetize? Those differences are a strength. And you're looking for as much diversity of thought as possible. It only makes things better. Now, is there systemic racism? Absolutely. Guess what? A, a diverse and inclusive environment. We're going to acknowledge that. And then guess what? We're going to set the example. We're going to work together to weed that shit out. That's not acceptable within our organization from, from day one. And that leader set that, that tone. But we have to recognize that there are certain issues in this country. And then we got to put our differences aside to come up with a solution. If we're constantly focused on our differences, guess what? Nothing's going to get solved. Simple as that. But if we can put our, our differences aside and say, hey, we do have a problem here. What do you think your, are, are your solutions to this? Hey, I think that's a great solution. Let's go with yours and let, let's try to implement it immediately. And, and you're just not seeing any of that. Yeah. Well, you guys are talking about just the, the culture of the sentiment that you're talking about with how the military leads. And I wasn't in the military, so I don't know, but I, I have some friends and colleagues and I'm you know, through these different kinds of books that I read, things like that. You have this meritocratic way of the best idea wins. And there's just no, when you look at it from that perspective, there's just no room for anything else to come through. And then you have this feedback loop and then you have humility. So you have all these different components in the process of this framework. So yeah, you didn't walk readers through how to do an interview, but you're really changing the, the way that they view what they look at in terms of talent, that mindset of talent mindset how to step forward and focus on their competitive advantage, how to win. And just with those types of ideas, and, and Mike, you continue to say it's simple, but the framework is simple. The approach is simple. And you and George have really just built this framework, this pipeline of ideas to get people there. And I think folks really appreciate that because that's something that we need, especially in today's socioeconomic, social environment. You know, we lead off the book by saying you can't see talent. And there's an ex excellent example that Mike led in the book with. You can't see talent. And so when you're putting a lens on something that says, oh, because of this color, because of this gender, because of this religion, it, it's just one more bias in the process. You have to start from the fact that you can't see talent. You have to have a process that reveals it. And you have to be looking for those attributes. And if you stay focused on those, if you have that talent mindset, it starts taking down the rest of those problems that we just addressed. So I know we're, we're tapering off and it, it's such a good point to, st to start finishing the discussion. We've had so many people come in and comment some really great engaging ideas. So the, the book is being released. I think it's November 10th. What is next for you, gentlemen? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think between, you know, right now it's Mach 2 with our hair on fire between now and November 10th. And we're hoping we get the opportunity to continue to carry this message, not just to readers, but to companies. And because we believe the most powerful force in the world is the U.S. economy. Most people think the military, and they would think that we might say that, but we believe it's the economy. And we'd like to continue to give back. The book was a way to do that. We'd like to get out and start talking to more people. So, What's ahead of us is we hope building talent mindset, you know, company by company by company, leader by leader by leader. That would be the absolute best thing for Mike and I. It's, and 
I, I don't know why I'm having trouble articulating this right now. It's um, for me, my, you know, a lot of veterans struggle finding what they want to do when they get out of the military. And that's look at it from this standpoint, Derek, because I know you didn't serve when you leave and the military is flawed. It's not perfect. We're not saying that when you leave an environment that is the absolute definition of a spree de corps, because you all went through trials and tribulations together. There's this shared adversity. We are diverse and we are include, uh, we are, we are inclusive and it is a tribe. And then when you leave that and come home to a nation that is just divided and where we expect our leadership to be the very best in the national capital region, we get the exact opposite. I understand why it's difficult for a lot of veterans. When, when you and I were in the UT MBA program, I started Vetted Foundation. While the concept was solid and it got a lot of praise from even Huffington Post, ultimately it failed. And uh, that was a gut punch for me because I felt like I'd failed uh, veterans. I did I was able to pull off one cohort with 25 and it, it was impactful for those veterans and we affected lives. But my goal is to place as many military leaders into senior positions and companies as possible. And that's why I started this executive search firm. I basically took vetted the, the nonprofit pivoted and created a for-profit and strangely um, maybe it's the psychology of free, free enterprise. People were willing to pay for the exchange of value of grading, getting a great leader in their company where they weren't willing to make a donation for the, the same product. Lesson learned for, uh, for me. But I honestly believe that coming out of the military are some of the finest leaders this nation has. Some of the most well-rounded, emotionally intelligent, highly intellectual and, and effective leaders uh, this nation has ever seen. And for a lot of them, they just need the opportunity. And the opportunity is not there. And we look specifically for companies that, and we, we require them to say one thing to get our business. We actually screen our clients, like we, we screen our candidates and we take top candidates out of the military is we need to hear that leadership is more important than industry experience. And we've been so highly successful. Our uh, home run average is much higher than most firms for a reason is we took this model of special operations assessment selection. We still use it, uh, screening candidates in, and we're helping companies adopt that. And it's been uh, wildly successful, but my life pursuit and strategy moving forward is to turn NEF Overwatch into the world's number one military search firm, um, without debate. And there's a lot of work ahead of us. Come back to me in two decades and I'll let you know where I'm at. All right. So we, we got a couple follow-up comments. Um, Brandy says, Mike and George webinars for vets and military spouses really helped me navigate my job search, husband's deployment, cross-country move, et cetera. So she really says, thanks. Wayne uh, Tahiki tagged uh, someone named Liz Ryan. Uh, Dave says, uh, enjoying this and excited for the talent war. Finally, I think we can get to our last series of questions. Two questions. One question for both of you All guys. Right. And last question of the day. If you had seven days and unlimited resources, and then after those seven days, they were just gone, it ends. What would you focus on for those seven days? What would you do? Mm. George, you go first. You're smiling the most. Oh, I just like it. It's like a job interview. So I, I probably should be good at answering this question. Anything wide open? I can do anything. Anything. Yeah. What do you care? There are so many things that I could prioritize. One of the biggest things, and, and I think that this will, no matter how many great things there are to do in the world, if I had unlimited resources, unlimited time, well, seven days, 
I would put every bit of my energy, my money and resources into helping give back in as many ways as possible to the community that gave me so much. I have 20 years, I'm at the top of my profession and none of that would have been possible having not been a part of the United States Army, the United States military and the greatest leadership incubator. And I would do everything I could to take care of our vets, our spouses of military veterans, you know, those that are wounded, those that are struggling, those with challenges to improve their condition and make their lives as, as best I possibly could. Thank you, George. Mm-hmm. If I had unlimited resources for seven days, I'd find a way to bring all our men and women, our brothers and sisters in arms in service better overseas, find a way to bring them home out of these combat zones and, and just put this to bed. That's sort of, um, I can't build a time machine and bring home some of the guys that we didn't bring home. But if I'm dealing with reality and I had nothing but resources, I, I'd bring our, our, our men and women home. Thank you, Mike. And I didn't say this at the start of the episode. I wanted to wait to the peak of our discussion, but I just wanted to say from myself and my family, thank you both. And to the folks that are listening in real time or on demand, thank you for serving our country. Thanks. Thank you for your sacrifices. Thank you. So that, gentlemen, is concluding our live discussion. How can folks get a hold of you if they'd like to get a hold of you? How can they buy the book? So the book is sold uh, anywhere books are sold. Um, usually what Amazon is 80% uh, of sales, usually the easiest place. Um, it is in pre-sales now and, and I get it. I don't think I would purchase a book. I don't know if I'm <laughs> supposed to say that or publisher may, uh, that, but, um, it comes out November 10th. So if you, if you order it now, you'll get it. Uh, it'll be shipped out on November 10th. And we did do that strategically. November 10th is the United States Marine Corps birthday and November 11th is veterans day. So I think if anything, a lot of companies will, will walk away from this book and have a serious table session. They'll sit down at the table and say, hey, we need to talk. We don't have a strategy. We, we need to start developing one into us. If that conversation takes place, total victory, total victory. Yeah, and just simply Mike or George at EF Overwatch. And most importantly, do connect with us on LinkedIn. We're putting out a lot of content about the book and, and the things that we're doing and, and things that are going to help leaders and members of People Operations Human Resources, you know, achieve that strategic advantage and talent. So connect with us on LinkedIn if you can. And Derek, can't thank you enough for, for having us on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Had a great time. And for those listening, if you'd like the discussion today, please rate the podcast. It'll deploy in a few weeks to Apple Podcasts and anywhere you'd like to consume. If you rate and leave a comment specifically about this episode, I will find a way to get you a copy of the book. I'm going to dust off my credit card and get you a copy because it's that good. So thank you for listening and wishing you all the best. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, George. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you to everyone. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today and having some fun with us in the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow me on LinkedIn or at DRUSS Network, D-R-U-S-S Network on Twitter, Instagram. And you can also reach out to me anytime via email at Derek at thedatabinge.com. The Data Binge podcast is a personal thought form where we share knowledge and ideas, views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of my employer, Microsoft. I really hope you enjoyed. Thanks a lot.